Turn with me to Romans 1, 8 to 15. Romans 1, 8 to 15. Lord, may the entrance of your word bring light and understanding to us this morning. And as we hear your word, may it accomplish all that you've set it out to accomplish. In Jesus' name. And so we read, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. That without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. Asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. To strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. The first billion took five years. The second took nine months. And the third took seven months. When you hear a quote like that, I don't know about you, but I, you expect to hear that from probably a Fortune 500 company. But what's interesting, that's actually a statement from a spokesperson from the crowdfunding website, GoFundMe. If you're not familiar with GoFundMe, they're, they're an online website that they focus on collecting funds for people in need, people who have charities and campaigns, and so in their report, this is one of the things they said. They said that they collected $3 billion since 2010 to help people in need. And what's interesting about that, on their site, they mentioned that about $1 billion was collected from strangers. So strangers who didn't know the people who were raising, they were able to collect $1 billion. And another useful information I, I saw when I looked at that report, they were giving some of the reasons behind why they give. Some of these strangers, and it's very interesting. Here's one of them. Some of the people, they feel more connected to the campaigns they su support. So it's a sense of connection. For another, they said it makes them feel a part of something bigger than themselves. This one is very interesting. It's humanity's responsibility to make the world a better place through acts of loving kindness. It was interesting looking at that because what I recognize for a lot of people, we're motivated by a lot of things. 
Our motivation to do good to people, very different. And especially what we hear from the world. And with that in mind, I want you to consider, what, what motivates you in some of your own acts of service and care towards people? Whether it be to people close to you, whether it be to family members, whether it be to strangers. How do you view pursuing people's good? I think as we look at this passage from Paul, we're going to see his own motivation. We're going to see his own motivation and his care for the church in Rome. And what's even more interesting, this is a church mixed with Jew and Gentile of people he did not really know in person. So Paul didn't know these people. He heard of their reputation as we just read. And he, you see a sort of care that he has for them. And you, you really get a good sense of what is motivating Paul as he cares for them. And so if I'd come up with some sort of proposition, I would say we will learn as we look at his example how seeing God's grace in others should drive us to pursue their growth. As Paul is, is seeing God's work in their own lives, as Paul is even getting a sense of his own work in his life, we see Paul is compelled to respond in a number of ways. All of this leading to his growth and to his strengthening. And as we mentioned before, though he is not very familiar with them individually, he expresses some desires for the relationship. And in a lot of ways, I believe that will model things for us, model the sort of nature of Christian fellowship. Because of how God is at work in him and his readers, it serves to define and shape their own relationship. It enriches and, and determines the priorities of their own interaction. And so, we're going to have four points. The first point, we're going to look at gratefulness for God's work. The second point, we're going to see Paul's own persistently aimed prayers for the church in Rome. And then, we're going to look at his own eagerness for mutual edification. And finally, we're going to hear Paul's own responsibility for gospel communication. And I must confess, when looking at the book of Romans, it's a very tricky thing for me at times. You, there are many books written about all the reasons Paul wrote the book of Romans. Books this thick. So there are a lot of reasons. You hear reasons. This is to advance some of the mission that he wants to do. When you look in the book, you see that Paul lays out just one of the grandest explanations of the, of the gospel. And for different people, they're saying Paul wants to address some of the differences in the churches. But even more interesting, when you look at these introductions... One of the tricky things I find is recognizing we're talking about Paul. Paul is very unique. I don't know about you, but I don't know about you, but I have not gotten a personal tutor from the risen Christ, and I've not been taught the gospel directly from him. This is Paul's situation. Paul's own calling is very unique. But Regardless of that, Paul himself says, follow me as I follow Christ. 
And in a lot of ways, as we look at some of his own examples, I believe we're going to be able to learn from him. And so, let's look at the first point. It's in verse 8. I'll read it again. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul begins in this posture of thanksgiving. And this is not a first time for Paul. For Paul, when he writes his 13 epistles, 10 out of them, he starts with thanksgiving. But as we mentioned, this is even unique because Paul does not know these people. This is actually his longest pastoral introduction and thanksgiving. And as I said, it's understandable. For many of the people in the churches that he speaks to, he's preached the gospel to them. He's started churches. His elders have risen among them and he knows them. He calls them by name. But for this church, by the time he's writing this in his third missionary journey, Rome is very established. This is an established church. God has been doing a great work in the capital and Paul now is hearing about what's happening. And so Paul is going to have to, in verses 1 to 7, lay out a very long intro. He's going to say, hey, this is who I am. This is what God has called me to do. This is the gospel that I'm about to lay out to you. And then he comes in this section that we're looking at and almost tries to touch their heart. So after laying out his very, very long resume, he says, well, this is my intention I have for you. This is what I want to accomplish. And he starts with this sort of Godward gratitude for them. This Godward gratitude. And it's very unique to, to notice this because even though they are the subject, he's the one, he's thanking God for them. They are the subject. Paul first directs this thanksgiving to God. He rightly does that because he's recognizing that this witness, this fruit that he's seen is a result of God. Paul expresses this witness that it's throughout the whole world. We know that's some hyperbole because we know it's not across the whole world. But with Rome, you can understand why he would use that sort of phrasing. All roads lead to Rome. So Rome is a, a very popular place and a very influential place. So when you have believers in Rome, it will be known. People will be speaking about, hey, there's some believers there. There's some believers there. They're probably hearing of their own witness, the uniqueness that we see even in Acts about how these guys were living, this countercultural lifestyle. And so that's being told across the world, so to speak. And so Paul is hearing this. But I want to point out something interesting about what he says. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ. What is this through Jesus Christ that Paul is talking about? Through Jesus Christ. For sure, we, we get the sense that this through Jesus Christ is speaking about this idea of mediator, Christ, the mediator between God and man. Surely, because of what Christ has done, because of who he is, Paul can rightly even speak to God. Because of what Christ has done, he can thank God for what he's seen. Christ, the mediator between God and man. But I believe there's another aspect that you can look at it as well, where in seeing through Christ, 
Paul seen through the lens of Christ. Paul, in light of what Christ has done, he's able to see his readers in a very unique way. Paul is able to see what is happening in their lives because of what Christ has done. And as we mentioned, verses 1 to 7, I know people like to speak about Romans 1, 16 to 17 as this great summary statement. But if you'd notice, when you look at 1 to 7, Paul actually lays out a very good summary of the gospel as well. Because Paul says that this gospel, if you look in verses 2, that it, it was promised beforehand. It was promised in the Holy Scriptures. And who it was talking about, the subject was Christ. It's concerning his son who is a descendant from David. This, this king, this promised king. But then also mentioning that because of his resurrection from the dead... He was attested to be God. So Paul mentions some of that. He lays out some of what it means to be Christ. And then he speaks about his work, who by his work has given us grace, which is now the result of faith that he's seen in their own lives and has now resulted in them being called to God. So... Paul, in speaking about that, and now when he says through Christ, he surely has that in mind. He surely has that in mind. And so, this ability to see his readers in this way is first of all a result of him experiencing God's grace. As a recipient of God's grace, he's able to give thanks for the work God is doing in their lives. What he sees in his readers is because of this unmerited, this unasked for grace of God, which he received himself and now he's perceiving in them. God is the author of their faith. This is what warrants his thanksgiving. And I just want to say at this point, it's important to recognize this thanksgiving is not because of some naivety. He's not, he, he really doesn't know these guys. Surely, Paul, if you knew what's going on, you wouldn't be so thankful. But this is Paul's attitude. Paul, even when you look in Romans 14 and 15, he's going to actually address some issues that he's seen. Because of this Jew-Gentile relationship, he's going to address some disagreements among them. He's going to speak about the weak and the strong and you guys need to bear with one another. He's, he's actually going to point out in, in, in chapter 14 verse 1 that among them there are quarrels being generated. And so he's going to call them to, to be unified. He's going to call them to stop passing judgment on each other. Don't cause each other to stumble. So Paul knows them. He knows what they are, the, some of the struggles they have. But despite that, Paul recognizes the importance of identifying and calling to attention where he sees God at work in their life. This faith being exhibited throughout the world is a result of God's divine activity. But we even see that even though it's directed to God... That thanksgiving would truly be an encouragement. You can imagine them, because it's not a book, they're reading the scroll and looking through and just saying, wow, look at this. Look at Paul's 
own thanksgiving to God. Look, look at what an encouragement this would be to us. And so I believe what we should recognize from that of the importance of even communicating this sort of thanksgiving to the people that are among us. You know these authors very well, Gary and Betsy Rikuchi. In their book, they, they, they were speaking about marriage, and I think it applies here about biblical encouragement. This is what they say. Biblical encouragement involves actively looking for areas where God is at work in your spouse's life and drawing attention to the grace in operation there. It helps us remember that almost all spiritual change is incremental and that God is always at work to mold us more fully into the image of his son. To withhold encouragement despite progress, even if it's just a glimmer of progress, is to rob God of glory, who is always faithfully at work to conform us to Christ. I mean, I, we make a joke back home. We call things like that Gary and Betsy bombs. <laughs> Betsy bombs. It, it, it's, but this is so true. And I think this applies not just to marriage. This applies to even our parenting. As a, as a father of four, it's very easy for me to get in just correction mode. I mean, where I'm at, is, it's seven and nine months. And it's just easy to get in just correction, 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 correction. But I too need to look at God's grace in their lives. This speaks to the relationships that we have with the brethren. As I said, it, when, when reading this, this really served to challenge me. Because when I recognize that a lot of my language is not being ca- correct characterized by gratitude I'm recognizing I need to change my lens I need to change my lens I'm not seeing God's grace in them mostly because I'm forgetting about God's grace in my own life is that what's hindering even even when you think of yourself and other relationships where you you just don't find that you're able to give gratitude for people is that possibly what is hindering that Do you need to clean those lenses as well? Even as I said, when when you look at your your spouse, your children, people in your care group, one of the things that as I was looking at this, I was really challenged by the Lord about certain relationships that I had. There's a brother, even, even in the pastor's college, that, I mean, love him, love him, but... I just found that I just always see some of his, his issues. Always being critical in my mind. You know, fortunately, the Lord gives me self-control to not communicate that. But I just found that, I'd, you know, why is he so impatient? You know, why is he so harsh? Why is he so... And I found that I would be doing that. And again, looking through this and being encouraged about preaching it. I just remember just reading it and Lord just saying his name to me. Saying his name to me. And it, it really caused me to just close the book and go and pray. Because <laughs> I recognize that I need to, to actively be asking these sort of questions. Where am I seeing God's work in his own life? 
And by God's grace, I was able to see it. There's just so much good in his life. And it, not surprisingly, as soon as I started to say, hey, brother, I just, I just want to thank God for what I'm seeing in here and here. It's just amazing how God used that to really encourage him. And even me seeing how he was responding to even some of the weaknesses that, again, was just so evident to me. And so I'm, I'm just so grateful to the Lord because even with community, it's very easy for us because we get to see each other's lives. We see the good, the bad, the ugly. But we must be looking for God's grace. Let us train ourselves to exude an aroma of grace and challenge ourselves to look for where God is at work in the lives of people. The sinking, first of all, is going to protect us from our own tendency of self-sufficiency, recognizing even any good that we're seeing is God's grace in our own lives. But it will definitely protect us from our own pride. Because God isn't on the move in people's lives and he's on the move in your own life. And so as, as we said, Paul seen this evidence in God's, in, of God's grace in his readers. He now transitions into verses 9 to 10 where he speaks about his aimed prayers for them. He says, God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. That without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. As we read that, we, we really see his own aspirations for them through his own prayers, his aspirations to be with them. After expressing this gratitude in light of what he's seeing God is doing in their lives and in light of his own calling, he communicates his intention for them. I hope you see the sort of care that Paul is having. Without, without ceasing, I mention you. Without ceasing. This is Paul we're speaking about. Paul, well, as I said, he only knows them by reputation. But that's enough for them to be on his prayer list. He only knows what he's heard that God is doing, but that's enough for him to dedicate frequent prayer for them. Paul is a man on a mission. As you know, he's gone to probably at least 50 cities. So who can imagine the amount of people he's actually seen? The amount of people he's had to interact with. These beautiful feet carrying the gospel. I wonder if you could see just probably filled with much blisters. But we can see even the scars on his knees for the times he's praying for all of these people. It's just a beautiful imagery. And again, it really serves to encourage me. It really serves to encourage us about our own attitude to have people in our own hearts. Not just when we serve them. Not just re remembering that to just have them on our prayers. Before Paul spoke to the people, Paul was speaking to God about the people. Showing his own reliance on him to do the work of growth that he wants to see in their lives. And so, again, you can really tell what, what we care about when you look at the contents of our prayers. And as we say, to buffet his point in the next verse, he says, he calls God to witness about a very specific prayer for Paul He's praying for them. Right here we don't see it. We don't know 
the other prayers. But specifically, he's saying, I want to come to them. Paul doesn't want to just pray for them and leave that alone. He wants to be the very answer to their prayers. That's what Paul wants. You know, John MacArthur, he was commenting on this verse. And he he says a, a wonderful quote here. He says, there is an important place for praying for others in the Lord's service. But the true measure of our concern for God's work is our willingness for him to use us. I must say, just in a lot of ways, again, this family of churches have really served to show me this sort of care. Just this care through prayer. As Larry mentioned, for us, my family, my wife actually was at the church we are a part of, where I got saved. Her father was one of the first elders there. Before she was even a thought, that church began. And so all her life, this is what she knows. All my saved life, that was all I knew. But as the Lord continued to grow us and challenge us to to do our work in our own country, and as the Lord challenged us concerning our own convictions, concerning just just Reformed theology and gospel centrality, we recognize, okay, I think God is calling us somewhere else. And my wife, being the godly woman, though she knew nothing much about Reformed theology. She knew nothing much about sovereign grace. In her obedience to God, she said, okay, let's go. But I must confess, I don't think she was the most eager to come. But also because of what we had to do, we had to sell a lot of things. Sold things and suitcase clothes were here. But it was just amazing that when we came here, the first time we came, just at the church in Louisville, people come in and saying, oh, the tailors, we've been praying for you. Children coming to us and saying, we've been praying for you in our family devotions. How that, that really rocked us. Because again, we don't know these people. But whatever they've heard, whatever testimony they've heard about what God was doing in our own lives, that was enough for us to be on their prayer list. Even now, I sense that. People greeting me and saying, we're so happy to have you here. We're praying for you. One of the highlights for me was eventually when we were at the conference, the pastor's conference in November. And while we're seeing people praying for us, but people giving to our needs and, and wanting to be there to support us. My wife was just in the conference and just saying, Sean, I, I feel like I'm in the book of Acts. I feel like I'm in the book of Acts. And then it still, it still rocks me when I think of it. When she just came to me after a session and said, Sean, we did not make a mistake coming here. We did not make a mistake leaving all that we had behind to come and serve and be with this family. And so I just want to thank you. I want to thank you, Sovereign Grace, for just your own modeling of this truth, modeling of this reality, because it really served to to encourage us. It has really served to encourage us in, in the work that we feel called to do. 
And so again, fueled by seeing God's grace in the lives of his readers, fueled by his own aimed prayers, we see him now in verses 11 to 12, having an eagerness for mutual edification. Verses 11, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul longs to see them. Paul longs to be with them because he wants to impart some spiritual gift. A lot of commentary is put here on this section. And Paul doesn't say exactly what he has in mind in verse 11 when he says spiritual gift. But I'm very sure it's, a, it's, it's Paul. It's, it's, it's a spiritual gift, no doubt. It might be his own preaching gift. It, it might be his own leadership gift. But what we do know for sure in verse 11, that the purpose is to strengthen them. I think verse 12 even brings some clarity for what he has in mind, where he says, that is. So I want to impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. No, I'll confess again, I'm reading this. And at that point, I stopped and I said, okay, Paul, you're just being coy. You're just, you're just being humble. Because surely, I, ex- I expect you doing what you said in verse 11. This is a guy that got hit off his horse. He was blinded because the risen Lord came to him. Then the risen Lord gave him tutoring of the gospel. He then went to the apostles, not to check if he was right, but even to check if they were right, if they really got the gospel that he received. This is the same man who he spoke about, of a man, he's so humble, doesn't want to say who it is. I know of a man who has been to the third heaven, seen things that a man shouldn't speak of. This is Paul. I surely expect that he has much to impart to them. But this is what's amazing. Paul is not showing any false humility. Paul actually expects that by his interaction with the believers, their faith will be strengthened, but so will his. He expects to be strengthened by their faith. Paul is not the type of preacher who preaches and after he's done, he gets his honorarium and he leaves. Paul is a man that wants to be with the people. He's surely going to be imparting things, but he expects God to be doing a work in his own life. Again, I can't help but use sovereign grace as another example. Meeting men like Larry, meeting men like Gary, meeting men who have decades of experience, gifts upon gifts. Men I wish I could preach like, men I wish I could break the word like. But interacting with these men, and just seeing the humility. Them being very interested. So Sean, tell me a story. Tell me what God is doing. And them even responding, I'm so encouraged by you. There's no meeting with, with these leaders where you're not finished and the end saying, just thank you. Thank you for, thank you for your, your faith. Thank you for what God is doing in your life. And I'm recognizing at first, I said, you know, these guys are being too kind. Surely we are benefiting more. 
Surely we are. But no. These men, these women, they've been reading Paul, it seems. They've been reading Paul. They've been following his own example. And so it really, just to to even apply that truth, it, it really reminds us of the reality that the relationship, whether it be between a mature believer or a younger believer, it's not one-sided. God is doing mutual growth. Every believer indwelt by God's Spirit can be a channel of God's grace. So again, you are the young believer and you're fervent. You're excited. That serves to be an encouragement. Yet the mature believer with their consistency, consistency in the word, consistency following the Lord, serving to be a true example. If you are someone suffering, walking through hard times, but recognizing that despite what's happening, you're still trusting in God. How that serves to be an encouragement. Regardless of what's happening in your, in your life, if you're in season or out of season, God's intention is that you being indwelt with the Spirit should serve to encourage. There's no phase in life where God does not desire to put himself on display that our lives may serve to strengthen and encourage others. Our faith in God on display that others may be strengthened. This is what Paul has in mind for the church at Rome. This is how he'd want to pursue their growth. This is how he wants to pursue their good through mutual edification. And this is what we want to even accomplish in in all our gatherings. Facilitating fellowship where any and every believer can be a mediator of God's grace one to another. And so as Paul showing his gratefulness to God for the work he's seen in them. As Paul being encouraged and leading him to persistently aim prayers. And then showing his own eagerness for mutual edification. We see something else that that Paul wants to be doing. And so in verses 13 to 15, we see his own responsibility for gospel communication. Verses 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. In order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul makes it clear that all these things that he wants to be doing in them, he's been preventing to do so, so far. In, in chapters 15, 22, we, we, we get this idea possibly that maybe it's because of this evangelistic work he's doing in Greece. That's possibly what has prevented him to do so. And as you read the book of Acts, you'd recognize that it really takes three years later for him to eventually arrive in Rome. But be assured, he wants to visit them. He wants to visit them. He wants to reap a harvest among the Gentiles. He wants to win some converts. This is the apostle to the Gentiles. And so even though the fruit that is presently there, 
The fruit that's presently being told across the world was not a result of his own hands. He knows that the harvest is still plentiful. It's still plentiful and Paul is a most willing laborer. As we look at at verse 14, though, I think there are two things we we can address. You know, why why does Paul feel obligated? Why does Paul feel obligated? And and what's about these distinctions, the Greek, the barbarians, the wise, the foolish? You know, Paul's obligation, while he's certainly motivated by what he's seen God doing in their lives, he's also motivated by something else, his own obligation. And even when we think about obligation, you probably can look at it in two ways. I mean, for example, if, if I came to Nora and I said, Nora, can you, can you lend me $100? When Nora gives me that, I am now in her debt until I pay her back. I don't think that's what Paul has in mind. Paul, Paul hasn't borrowed anything from these, these people. But uh, now maybe, maybe if we have Nora, Nora comes to me and says, Sean, can you give $100 to Larry? Can you give $100 to Larry? In that action, I know I'm in the debt of Larry. Because of what Nora has done, she has put me in Larry's debt. She has entrusted me with this $100. And it's in this way that Paul is obligated. Paul himself, because of the calling, because of what God has done... He's been entrusted with this gospel. He's been entrusted with this gospel to go to all the Gentiles throughout the world. And so Paul sees this call to communicate the gospel as his own obligation. He is God's steward. And so we even hear in in another occasion in 1 Corinthians 9.16, Paul says, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. This is how Paul saw the gospel. Woe to him if he didn't preach it. Woe to him. And, and as, as I said, even though Paul is unique, I don't think there will be another Paul, we have somewhat of a similar obligation. I believe we have somewhat of a similar obligation. Paul's sense of obligation and his own commission, though unique, we can use that as a model. We may not be the full-time evangelist like Paul, But in many ways, because of being recipients of God's grace, because of what God has done in us, we have that similar obligation. We even, just even hearing the testimony, what's going on in Croatia, recognizing what what God has done in, in, in me and what's going on in the church and the response saying, yeah, but is, can, can the people in Croatia say the same thing? I think that's what fuels just a lot of, 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 of us, even hearing the guys from the pastor's college, just the same sort of obligation, recognizing even for myself, growing up in Jamaica, even though it is said that we have the most churches per square mile, people will pay lip service to Christ and they know of Christ. Being there, I've recognized we also used to be... On the top five murder capital of the world. If you go in a class, 70% of people, they've been born out of wedlock. And so we are a true contradiction. Surely many churches, but there's a disconnect. And so even just that 
I feel that sense of obligation myself. But then Paul, in saying no, okay, I have this obligation, both to the Greeks, to the barbarians, to the wise, to the foolish. What does Paul have in mind? When you look at the background, you recognize for Greeks, everyone else in the world was actually a barbarian. That's how they viewed people. Because of their own education, they consider themselves wise, everybody else foolish. But even among the Jews, they would see everybody else as barbarians, you know, Gentile dogs. You know, they saw themselves as wise and others foolish. And really, when Paul uses this, this is his exhaustive list. He's saying, I am obligated to everyone. You know, even the world has their own distinctions. We're so polarized. Different political people, the race. But Paul is saying, listen, this gospel that I've been entrusted with is for all people. Paul's obligation to share to anyone, regardless of racial, national, cultural, social, or intellectual differences. This is one of the beauties of the gospel. The gospel has this ability to just level the playing field. It's the divine leveler. As I said, you can't help but watch the news and just hear this rhetoric. This rhetoric of our differences. Different political views. Race issues. You you don't understand what's going on with me. And really that's what people are crying. You don't understand my issue. You don't understand what's going on. And it it can be very bombarding for some of us at times where we're like... What's the solution? What's the solution for all these issues? But even though we are different people and seemingly have different problems, here's the truth. At the end of the day, this verse reminds us that no matter who we are, we all have this in common. The problem of our sin and the solution of Christ. It is this gospel preach. That will bring the harvest. It is this gospel, this message of Christ and Him crucified. That will solve a lot of the issues that we do see. And that's very encouraging. Recognizing because of what God has done for us. He did the work we could not accomplish. I just love the songs that we sang this morning. He lived a life that I could not live. He died the death that I deserved. On the third day, he rose again because of what he did. Anyone who trusts in him, anyone, anyone, bright, not bright, high class, middle class, low class, anyone, you speak English or you speak Patois. Which is what I speak in Jamaica. Patwa. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who we are. We have the same issue, but we have the same solution through Christ. And it is it's this obligation to, to people. It doesn't result for him as this is a burden. The word obligation is, this is not a burden for Paul. For Paul, this is not a weary yoke. Because in verse 15, the, he says, this produces Eagerness. I am 
eager to preach to you. I'm enthusiastic to preach this gospel. This harvest he speaks of reaping among the Romans, the Roman citizens, the Gentiles. He wants also preach in the church. This harvest he wants to see in them. He knows this harvest is going to come about by the same means in the church. The gospel. It produces a harvest among the non-believers and the believers in Rome. And even at Sovereign Grace, I don't... we are the champions of, of this gospel centrality. We, we speak about it a lot. And I'm so grateful for that. But I, I hope we would never reach the point where it's, this, where it's overstated. And that we feel that we've graduated from the gospel. I hope that our history would never be that it's something that we assume. That it, it, it becomes just another catchphrase yes gospel centrality gospel centrality i pray that for us as a family of churches that we would truly recognize this for what it is it is the harvest that will come about in non-believers and believers it will bring the harvest the gospel christ and him crucified jerry bridges says this he says The gospel is not only the most important message in all history, it is the only essential message in all history. This very means that will bring the harvest in the church and outside the church. And so this is why we do what we do. This is why we sing the gospel. This is why we teach the gospel. This is why we want it to sit in our relationships, in our vocation, in our education, in in our recreation. And so for Paul, pursuing growth and good is through his faithful communication of the gospel. You know, as I end, I just want to remind us, you know, by God's common grace, we're able to say the world pursuing good for people. They do it in many ways. It results in many campaigns. But for Paul... And I believe for us, as we seek to pursue the good of others, as we seek to pursue their growth, that we would follow in his steps. That we will see his heart, but we will see the heart of Christ. Christ enabling us to recognize what God is doing in the lives of others. To be motivated by what he's done in our lives. And to pursue their growth through persistent prayer. Through mutual edification and gospel communication. May God by his grace do that with us today. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. And we pray, God, that even as you have done in us, that that would continue to motivate us to pursue the good and growth of those around us. May your name be glorified and may your fame be made known in this church and throughout the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.